Hi, I'm Kelsey. And I'm Sienna. And you're listening to And Yet. Conversations about the intersection of culture and health. Why do we go there? Because frankly, we need to. And we want you to know, we're with you. We all have a story we need to help unpack. But where do we fucking start? And where do we even end? Here's your permission to meet us in the messy middle. The And Yet Podcast with Sienna and Kelsey. listeners, welcome back to the And Yet podcast. So I think today's episode is a conversation that is really crucial to the healing and the growth of us as individuals and also us as a society moving forward. And what we're talking about today is how we actually inherit trauma through our DNA. That means that it's not all your fault. (laughs) Yay. Yay. Yeah. (laughs) So I always felt like some of my anxiety and some of my emotional stress came from either experiences I've had or also I felt like maybe some of it was like past life or having to do with my ancestors. And I always thought of it in this sort of spiritual way. Yeah, which is really insightful. And obviously your background, having kind of brought up in... Being raised by hippies. Basically, yeah. <laughs> yes. no, Spiritualism was very big in my household. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I, I think that's really beautiful and awesome that you whether it was scientifically understood at, at that time being raised. There was not a lot of science in my house. Sure. Okay, great. Right. <laughs> in the early 90s. Because <laughs> I think your child was amazing. But, you know, you had that, that instinct that it was more than the sum of your personal experience. Yeah. Which yeah. is pretty amazing. I, I think most of us out there, including myself, haven't had, really had that sense. And it has felt like every time I react and sometimes overreact to things it's felt very much like this is my problem and I need to sort out kind of right my own psyche (laughs) right and that's the thing it's like it's always falling on us to fix ourselves it's always we need to go to therapy we need to go to meditation we need to go to yoga we need to fix ourselves and maybe we are actually looking at the parts of ourselves or looking at areas that we think we need to fix all wrong Yeah, that's a really, really valid point. And I'm so grateful that you had heard about our guest before and even read his work because I gained a huge amount out of this conversation and having read his work now, it's really changed my relationship to my reactions and and sometimes my grief. And we'll get into that a little bit more later. Well, I'm glad that you had that reaction. And I've since reading um, Mark's work, I've told everybody that they need to read this book. I bought a copy for my mother and she bought some for her friends. And I'm just like, everyone needs to read this or at least start to understand epigenetics and how we do pass on trauma through our DNA. And I found the book just completely at random. I was like wandering around Barnes and Noble one day and the title is is called It Didn't Start With You. And I just remember being like, oh, thank God. <laughs> oh, totally. Yes. Totally. Didn't well, start with me. <laughs> very happy that you stumbled across in that bookshop that day. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe tell us about our guest. <laughs> yeah. So Sienna and I were both a bit starstruck when preparing to record this episode. We had the good fortune. And I think to both of our surprise, he agreed to come on our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so Mark Wellen is the director of the Family Constellation Institute in San Francisco, He's a leading expert in the field of inherited family trauma. A sought-after lecturer, he has taught at the University of Pittsburgh, the Western Psychiatric Institute, Kripalu, the Omeka Institute, and the New York Open Center, and the California Institute of Integral Studies. 
Mark specializes in working with depression, anxiety, obsessive thoughts, fears, panic disorder, self-injury, chronic pain, and persistent symptoms and conditions. Can you relate to any of those? <laughs> I'm like, check, 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 check. all of the above. Yeah. <laughs> His book, It Didn't Start With You, How Inherited Family Trauma Shapes Who We Are and How to End the Cycle, is the winner of the 2016 Nautilus Book Award in Psychology. His articles have appeared in Psychology Today, Mind Body Green, MariaShiver.com, Elephant Journal, and Psych Central. And his poetry has been published in The New Yorker. Hi, Mark. Hi, Kelsey. Hey, Mark. We're thrilled to have you today. Thank you so much for making the time to chat to us. Uh, thank you, Sienna. I'm glad to be on the podcast. So, Mark, as we've kind of already spoken to you about, but Sienna and I are really big fans of the work that you're doing. And I also think it's very revolutionary and groundbreaking work. A lot of people are really unfamiliar with epigenetics and the territory that you're sort of wading through. We were wondering if maybe you could tell us in your own words and like in layman's terms for those of us that are still new to this concept, what exactly epigenetics is. Okay, so many of us are living with this mystery that we can't explain. That's uh, before I even get into epigenetics, we have unexplained fears or anxieties that strike suddenly when we reach a certain age or hit a certain event in our lives or depression that we never get to the bottom of. And we have these symptoms and we don't have a clue where they come from. What we're learning is these symptoms may not be ours, that they could actually be the residues of trauma in our family history that we've biologically inherited from our parents or grandparents or even our great-grandparents. So when you talk about epigenetics, that's now let's get into what's going on here. When we have a trauma, it changes us. Mark, can I stop you for a second? When you say trauma, what kinds of experiences would, would be categorized as trauma? Great, great question. So uh, we can have, for example, a disconnect from our mom in utero because the baby died stillborn before us and mom was uh, fearing that we would die too, that's a trauma. Mom could lose the baby after us. That would be a trauma. Mom and dad are fighting and we're in utero or just a baby. That's a trauma. Dad leaves. Someone cheats. They separate. Someone dies. They're numerous really to so numerous, but any of these can create an epigenetic change. So literally when a trauma like this happens, it causes a chemical change in the DNA. And this can change how our genes function, sometimes for generations. So technically, there is a chemical tag or information signal, whatever you want to call it, that attaches to the DNA and tells a, a cell, based on this trauma that just happened to us, let's use this gene or let's ignore this gene. And then the way the genes are affected can change how we act or feel. For example, we can become reactive or overly sensitive to situations that are similar to a trauma that our parents experience so we can deal with it better. So the, the crazy thing is, let's say our grandparents let's say they come from a war-torn country. And so there's police lineups and people being shot and bombs going off and people taken forcibly from their homes. They would pass forward a skill set 
of sharper reflexes, let's say, Mm -hmm. or quicker reaction times or fear, terror that can help us survive the trauma that they experienced. And so this is what's passed down. It's a modification, an adaptation. The problem is, is we can also inherit a stress response along with the skill set, with the dials set to 10. And here we are prepared for a catastrophe. And we're, we're waiting and waiting for the police to come or, or, or waiting for the bombs to go off. And it's just not in our life. It's in the life of our parents or grandparents. And in other words, we're born with fears and feelings that are theirs, and we think that they're ours, and we don't make the link, which is why I wrote the book, because we don't make this link. Many of us are walking around half half freaked out. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's so true. <laughs> and, and it's not really our trauma that we're reeling from. Right. And how is it? How is that passed down? So it's passed down, again, in these gene changes. So there's this chemical change that happens to our parents or grandparents after a trauma. And the way the genes are is now responding, for example, the cell is silencing certain genes or activating certain genes or turning this gene up or this gene down, the way it's responding, this gene expression is what's passed down. Not the, not the, it doesn't change the DNA, but it changes the way the genes express. And this expression, this is what's passed forward. And what we're learning is this can be passed forward for three generations. Mark, could you speak to some of the science that you mention in, in the book that kind of helps explain this field of work? Absolutely. We've known for years that something like this was happening, but it wasn't until about, oh, I don't know, 12, 13 years ago that a neuroscientist out of Mount Sinai Medical School in New York named Rachel Yehuda discovered that the children of Holocaust survivors shared the same trauma symptoms as their children, specifically the low levels of cortisol, which is the stress hormone that gets us back to normal after a stressful event. She found, so here are Holocaust survivors experiencing depression and anxiety and their children experiencing depression and anxiety. And she finds a similar pattern in the children who were born to mothers who were pregnant at or near the World Trade Center when it was attacked during 9-11. She finds that these babies, not only are they inheriting compromised cortisol levels, but there's 16 different genetic markers in these children. They're smaller for their gestational age. And then just a couple years ago, she finds that survivors and their children share the exact same gene changes in the exact same region of the exact same gene, technically the FKBP5 gene. <laughs> wow, you know your stuff. Know their genes, right? <laughs> right. Well, we love, we, we love this question because we think that this could be misinterpreted as some woo-woo, ethereal kind of hippie bullshit, and that's not at all <laughs> what it is. real so, stuff, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's, it suggests totally that traumas are heritable. She even goes further, Rachel Yehuda, and tells us that we're three times more likely to have symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder if one of our parents had PTSD. And then as a result, we're likely to struggle with anxiety or depression. So the pattern can be observed for two generations in humans. But how we know that three generations is in effect mm-hmm. is they begin studying 
mice and rats because mice and rats have 99% of a similar genetic makeup as humans, which means wow, that's 99% really of yeah. the genes in humans have counterparts in mice with about 80% being identical. And, and you can also get a generation of mice pretty quickly in 12 to right. 20 weeks, whereas with humans, it takes 12 to 20 years. So I'll, I'll talk about one of my favorite studies that's done at Emory Medical School in Atlanta. They take male mice and they made them fear cherry blossom scent. They shocked the mice whenever they would smell the smell. And they noticed that there were changes in their brain in their blood, and their sperm, specifically in the brain, there are these enlarged areas where there was a greater amount of smell receptors so that the mice could protect themselves by detecting the scent at lesser concentrations. That's the epigenetic change. That's the epigenetic adaptation that I was talking about earlier. So they also see changes in the sperm and the blood. So they take some of the sperm and they impregnate female mice that were not shocked. And then they wanted to see what happened in the next generation. What they found was astounding. They found that the pups in the second and third generation became jumpy and jittery just by smelling the smell, never being shocked. In other words, they had inherited the stress response without directly experiencing the trauma. Incredible. It is incredible. <laughs> so we often think of trauma as being such a negative term, and, and it is, I think, largely. But based on this information, it's also, in some cases, necessary. Do you, do you feel that to be true? Yeah, I think traumas are, are very important, actually. I like to see, see it in this way, that in the contraction of the trauma is the expansion, and that the traumas themselves are seeking that expansion. So they keep repeating, in a sense, to show us what's unhealed, because ultimately we're seeking healing. That's a beautiful way of putting yeah. it. Yes, oh that made me just feel so much better about all my <laughs> my own experience or, or yeah. family experience. Yeah, and, and so just following up on that, then, Mark, if if their trauma or kind of traumatic expressions are, are expressions of, of what hasn't been healed do you believe that once we heal them kind of at their core, that that expression would kind of relieve itself or go away? I always think that there's still a vestige to keep us honest in a mm -hmm, way. Mm -hmm. There's always a vestige of the trauma to make sure that we're walking the path that we trust. For example, when we talk about healing, which I'm sure we'll talk about how we heal from these traumas mm -hmm. pretty soon, when we hit on a practice that moves us, that we trust, that we believe in, that motivates us. It's these practices that are, that's how we heal. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. In other words, we don't just have a, an, an experience of healing for the most part, and that experience changes us completely. We have an experience that changes us towards something, toward an action. And it's through taking that action continually, repeatedly, practicing the new sensations of that experience, practicing the feelings of the practice, the feelings of the experience, feelings that we trust, sensations that we've come to know. That's how we heal. Yeah, Mark, and I have to say that your book completely changed my own relationship with my anxiety. 
when I do have periods of anxiety attacks, for me, my trigger was often the smell of something burning. So whether that was fire smoke or even like a match at times, just anything, the smell of burning or the smell of gas. And I was able to kind of through understanding the information that you were talking about in your book was able to trace that back to, you know, many of my family members were killed in the Holocaust. And yeah, and, and actually on both sides of my family, even though only one side is Jewish, which was really interesting. But that that smell for me is no longer a trigger which has been really helpful to work through. I I think in some ways, like at first when I would have that reaction to smelling gas or burning, I felt like, oh, well, maybe this is actually an evolutionary thing because I'm like back in the day, maybe I would alert somebody to danger. And now I realize that actually, no, this is just something that you've carried on through your family line. Um, And it's really helped me. That makes so much sense, Kelsey. Yeah, yeah, it was it was extremely eye-opening and and allowed me to finally let that go, which has been extraordinarily helpful. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's that's wonderful. I'm glad you bring that up. I tell a story in the book about a woman who wanted to commit suicide, and and I said to to this woman, "How are you going to do it?" And she said, "I'm going to leap into my brother-in-law works at the steel mill." And I'm going to leap into one of those vats of molten steel. And she used these words, my body will incinerate before it hits the bottom. And she used the words, I'm going to vaporize myself. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, yeah. And when I heard these words, vaporize, incinerate, I looked at this woman with her blonde hair and blue eyes. And I didn't think that she would have any connection to the Holocaust. And I said, so was anyone in your family involved in the Holocaust on, in any way, on either side, really? I think I asked the question, was anybody Jewish? And she said, my grandmother used to be Jewish in the old country before she came here. And I said, what old country? And she said, Poland. And I said, well, what happened? She said, well, she married my grandfather, who was Catholic, and they moved here. And I said, wait a minute, what happened? before they moved here. She said, well, they moved here in 1946. And I kept saying, what happened before then? And she said, she lost her whole family in Auschwitz. Wow. Oh, my gosh. And in that moment, she made the link Mm -hmm. to the words vaporize, incinerate, Mm -hmm. which for you, Kelsey, showed up in a visceral way of smelling the smell of burning. Right. And so, Mark, how how can someone tell? I mean, Kelsey has read the book, and and you were just a very self aware person generally. Kelsey. <laughs> but really, I didn't connect the dots in that way until I read. Yeah, this, this information. true. Yeah, but how can someone tell if that their symptoms or reactions might be a result of inherited family trauma? What What are some of the signs? So we can be born with a feeling or a body feeling or an emotion that we can never wrap wrap our heads around. So that's one aspect. But what I found is that there are definitely telltale signs when things strike suddenly. For example, we might have a fear or an anxiety or a symptom that begins suddenly when we reach a certain age or when we hit a certain milestone. For example, we get married or we get pregnant or we go to have a child or we leave home for the first time or we get rejected by a partner. And all of a sudden, it's as though there's this ancestral alarm clock that starts ringing inside us. I one time worked with this woman. She was consumed with anxiety, and that's all she could feel. 
And I said, have you always had this anxiety? She says, no, 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 no. It, it's since I've been pregnant. And I said, so what is it about being pregnant? What's the fear? What's the worst thing that can happen to you in this being pregnant? And she said, I could harm my baby. And I asked her, had you ever harmed a baby? She said, no. And I said, had anyone in your family ever harmed a baby? And she was about to say no. And she said, oh, oh, wait, my grandmother, when she was a young woman, she had a baby and it was upstairs and she was down in the kitchen and she lit a candle and the candle caught the curtains on fire and caught the house on fire and she couldn't get the baby out and the baby died. And, but we were never allowed to talk about it. And in that moment, two things really happened. She understood that she was carrying her grandmother's experience in her fears. And the second thing that was brought to light is how when we're not allowed to talk about something, when something is hushed, when something is kept under covers, when something is pushed away, when people are excluded or rejected, the traumas find a way to arise more, uh, I want to say more doggedly. Right. Uh, do, do we know why that might be? Well, well, it's interesting. We don't really know. I can talk about, for sure, I can talk about the research in epigenetics. And, you know, I can tell you all the studies which I've amassed in this book. But what I see is this. When traumas remain unresolved, or the healing is incomplete, or the people involved are rejected or pushed away or excluded, we often see aspects of the original trauma repeating in the, in the subsequent generations. Unconsciously, people are repeating the pattern or sharing a, a similar unhappiness. Again, it'll show up when a certain age is reached or a certain experience is reached. We move to a new town or we experience a similar circumstances. Why that is? There seems to be traumatic memory. Does it live in the genes? There hasn't been enough research to really flesh that out, which is another reason I wrote the book, so that, uh, that we can get more research in this area. What is exactly carried in the gene response? What type of memories really live there? Well, and also it makes me want to ask you as well, why is it then that, like, I have two sisters, for example, but I think that we have inherited probably different trauma and, and kind of, right. So who, like, how is it decided who gets what trauma or how is that kind yeah. of broken down into our genetics? I wish I had a scientific <laughs> explanation for this. The way I describe it to my students is it's like a big pizza, like an eight cut pizza. And the, you know, this is, these are the eight pieces of trauma in the family history. And the first boy, he might take two pieces of the trauma from the father's side. And the first girl, she might take a big piece of pizza from the mother's side. And later born children seem to carry trauma that can be even further away, maybe a grandparent's trauma. You never know exactly. That isn't always how it goes. But it seems to be first boys and first girls in a family can take, can, and this isn't always true, carry a larger piece of the trauma. And if there's a huge trauma in the family like the Holocaust, different kids can carry different aspects of it. For example, one child might carry a trauma around the smell of smoke, 
or a fear of men in uniforms. Mm. Where another child feels very scared about her children that she could lose her children and she becomes overprotective. Where the other child becomes cautious and untrusting of people and never has children at all. Where another child in the same family has a break in the bond with the mom who went through the trauma and can't receive the, the love that mom has to give. I mean, it's myriad ways it can pass down and express in different siblings. I talk about in the book, uh, one of these cases I had where there were three Lebanese women who both of their grandmothers were given away as child brides to these older men, the one grandmother when she was 12 and the other grandmother when she was nine. And so what passed down is the one sister married a much older man like her grandmother's. The other sister didn't want to have anything to do with men and didn't marry at all. And the other one felt trapped and turned off and shut down anytime she dated. Right. So it really can show up in a lot of different ways. Even the same trauma, Sienna, can show up in each child, but in a different aspect of it. Wow. Which gives a whole different meaning to me to the nature versus nurture ideology because... It, yeah, it is. I mean, I think a lot about birth order and how that affects just family dynamic, but this just kind of brings out a whole different view. It on adds that. another layer, doesn't yeah, it? It's exactly. not that kind of dichotomy anymore. It's, it's, it's a lot to think about. Right. Uh, Mark, just before I forget, you mentioned previously that this kind of can affect three different generations. Can you explain why it's three generations specifically? Absolutely. So there are three mechanisms that scientists have illuminated, three ways in which transgenerational trauma can be observed. One is what they call DNA methylation, where there's a methyl residue added onto the DNA, and they can observe this for three generations. Another one is non-coding RNA or or small RNAs, what they call microRNAs, and they see this in excess amounts for three generations. And the third one is called histone modifications, which are added to the proteins. And what that means is so they can look at something very physical and see it repeated in three generations. And then I'll give you an example. There's this researcher at the Brain Research Institute at the University of Zurich named Isabel Monsou. And what she did, she traumatized male mice by repeatedly separating them from their mothers. And afterward, they exhibited depression-like symptoms that we would call in humans. She even showed this slide in one of her YouTube videos where they took these depressed mice and for three generations dropped them in a bowl of water along with a mice that wasn't separated from the mother. And the mice that was separated from the mother would just die, would just float and drown. Whereas the mouse that wasn't separated for three generations, the pups and the grandpups, would try to get out of this bowl of water by racing around the sides. When they looked at, when they, they shouldn't dissect little mice brains, but when they were dissecting the mice, what they found in the second and third generations, not just the, the same trauma symptoms were experienced in all three generations, despite only the first generation having experienced the trauma, the researchers found abnormally high numbers of what that what I call those small non-coding microRNAs, this genetic material 
that regulates gene expression. They found it in the blood and in the brain. So although the mice in the third generation, this is the cool part, also expressed the same symptoms as their fathers and grandfathers, they did not have the elevated numbers of the microRNAs. They weren't detected. So the researchers speculated, aha, we can see that there's a three-generational link, but perhaps not beyond that. Wow, that's wow. really yeah. fascinating. And do you think that they might down the road find that it does actually go beyond the three generations? Yeah, actually, there are studies right now with worms where they can see generational link for 14 generations, but we're not worms. Right. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, and the reason I like the mice studies is once again, you know, because we share a similar genetic makeup with 99% of the, you know, the genes in humans and mice being similar. That's why we study the rodents. But yeah, we so far there's shown a three generational link. And the studies are still out there for humans because, you know, we can't get a it's only been about 13 years since we're even talking about this. This is a brand new field. And a generation in humans, as we said, is like 20 years. So, you know, the the jury's out. Yeah. And Mark, a lot of what you're speaking of, especially relating back to how this has passed down through generations from Holocaust survivors, and now we're seeing it happen with children who were in utero during 9-11. And now also when I watch the news, I think a lot about these immigrant children that are being separated from their oh, yeah. family. Yeah. And I, I don't know if you, if you, this isn't a political podcast, but we do cover this kind of spectrum of issues. And I'm just wondering when you watch the news, if you're just sort of recording, you know, how this might play out in the future. Absolutely. Absolutely. I really am. You know, when I think about these children who get separated at a young age like this, that's one of the largest traumas that I work with, which is attachment. Now, it can be our break emotionally or physical with our mother, or we can inherit our mother or father's break with his or her mother. You know, in that study I just talked about with the mice, where they separated the male mice from the mothers, they separate both female mice and male mice, and they find that the results can be similar. In fact, in one study, and I mentioned this in my book, the male mice were separated from their mothers for a very short period of time. It was two hours a day for the first two weeks of life. That was it. And the mice began to exhibit symptoms that we would call depression in humans. And the symptoms worsened when the mice aged. And the strange thing is some of the male mice that were separated didn't express the behavioral changes themselves, but appeared to epigenetically transmit the behavioral changes to their female offspring, to their daughters. That's our dads going off to war and the daughters are trembling. Oh, man. Just another, <laughs> another reason to us? fuel our rage. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, no, no. Wait, wait. trauma is an equal opportunity employer. It's the sons, it's the sons as well. So fair enough, fair okay. enough. Yeah. But, but in that one study that I list in the book, what was weird is dad's traumas had gone to the daughters. And, but it can go either direction. And when we have a break in the bond in, with our mother, or our mother had a break in the bond with her mother, or our father had a break in the bond with his mother, we can feel motherless, even though our mom was a good mom. 
Yeah, yeah. I'm going to ask a fairly personal and potentially selfish question <laughs> following up on that. So I lost my mother uh, to leukemia at a, at a young age when I was 11. Ah. Uh-huh. Which, you know, everyone has their thing. But my husband and I are thinking of starting a family at some stage, um, not too distant future, I hope. But I do worry about kind of some of the, the traumatic experiences that could impact our kids. Is that a, a common feeling that some of your students have? And, and can you speak to, to some of the practices and ways that we might be able to break and break the cycle and heal? Absolutely, Stan. I'm glad you asked me because there is something I can suggest. So 11 is way too young and it will break the bond. And when she got sick prior to that, when you were eight or nine or 10 or or whenever, we feel alone. We feel it it can be, let's just say it can be challenging to feel safe and secure in life. And sometimes also when mom's connection is cut off that early we can have difficulty trusting the feeling of who we are inside. And that's, so that's exactly, I, I feel that's exactly how it kind of played out. You're spot on. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about that then. There's something we can do. You can put a picture of your mom over your left shoulder above your pillow. So for example, your husband is sleeping on the right side of the bed at your right arm and you're sleeping on the left side of the bed and you, over your pillow, you've taped a picture of your mama. And you could do this practice at night because we know whether we visualize or whether it happens in real life, the brain doesn't know the difference. The change will occur. And so the practice would look like this. You'd look up at your mom's picture and you'd say, hi, mom, could you hold me in my sleep and heal the bond that broke between us because you left so early? And you could add these words if you needed to. You could say, Teach me how to trust your love, how to receive it, and and how to let it in. You could even say that if you needed to. And then you visualize, here's the healing part, a wave or current of energy or your mom's hand on your heart. And you feel her holding you, and then you fall asleep. And then in the morning, you get up, look at the picture and say, good morning, mom. And you go about your day. And at night, the last thing again, you do it again. Mom, hold me. I'm going to go to sleep. And you ask that she hold you in your sleep and teach you how to feel her again, teaching you how to receive comfort from her. Because it's hard for a child to ask mom for anything when she's sick. So what we learn as a little girl when our mom's sick is we learn to give rather than receive. And then we become a giver. And receiving isn't always easy. So what you're doing in this practice is receiving, healing the bond, and taking her love in and really feeling it. Does that make sense, Sienna? It makes a lot of sense, Mark, and now I have a new nightly routine. (laughs) No, it's really beautiful, and and it's also, I appreciate, like, it's a practical method, and, you know, I I, I really appreciate it. something you can physically do. Yeah, 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 exactly. No, that was really, really insightful and helpful. Thank you so much. I'm glad, Sienna, which, which leads me to talk about so how do we heal? What do we do, right? What do we do? Mm-hmm. We find, you know, both of you have been so open and really it's amazing. You don't see this much in in an interview where the interviewer says, hey, here's my personal experience. <laughs> We're very emotional people. So. <laughs> well, Tearing up over here. <laughs> well, it's lovely because what it does is it humanizes the whole 
interview and, and connects us in, in a very sweet way where we can talk talk um, about real things. Kelsey talks about the Holocaust and you talk about your mom passing. And, you know, so I feel led right now to just tell the listener what we can do. Please uh, do. What, how do we heal? So we've read the book and we've figured out our trauma language, which I'll talk about later. Mm-hmm. And then we need to have a new experience like the one about the photo that we talked about that's powerful enough to override the trauma response that lives inside so many of us, really, Sienna. Mm -hmm. For example, many of us have something. You even said it in a way in the beginning. We each have something. But the something you have is very big Mm -hmm. that she leaves so early and she gets sick when you're so young. Because rather than relying on her, of course, you learn to give to her Mm -hmm. and then to lose her. So the new practice of lying beneath her photo and receiving this can change the brain. Here's how it happens. So you're going to have feelings lying beneath her photo. You're going to have sensations. And this can be an experience of receiving comfort or support from her, or a feeling of gratitude, or a feeling of uh, being loved, or, or really anything that allows the listener to feel strength or peace inside. And then you're going to let it be emotionally important, because it is. And that's the other part of healing. I find that when we heal, we don't just do a practice because our uh, clinician, therapist, doctor tells us to do it. We do it because we have an emotional connection to the experience. It's emotionally salient. And so the idea is to steal traction away from the trauma cycle, the stress response that's in the midbrain. The idea of lying beneath this photo is that you're engaging other areas of the brain, specifically the prefrontal cortex, where you can integrate these new sensations and this new experience, and your brain can change. The reason being is because we're now pulling energy away from the limbic brain, the amygdala, the stress response, the trauma of her of her dying. And now we're living in the other part of our brain, which is like, oh, mom, she's holding me. Oh, here she is. I really feel her. Oh, my goodness. Look at these sensations in me. And then when we revisit, which I'm having you do this every night, the new feelings and the sensations associated with this new experience, not only do the structures in our brain begin to wire together, in other words, the dendrites of the old pathway and the dendrites of the new experience begin to communicate through the axons, and and you have this rewiring of new neural pathways. That, that's one thing that happens. But you also are going to stimulate the release of feel-good neurotransmitters like uh, serotonin and dopamine uh, and GABA, mm-hmm. or even feel-good hormones necessary to get pregnant with your husband, like estrogen, yeah. oxytocin. And even how the genes expressed can be affected by this thing that you're doing, which means your child will be less likely to pick up your trauma because you'll have mitigated it. In other words, the very genes involved in your stress response will begin to function in an improved way. And there's studies, I even list one in my book, where the mice, after they did the pos- they put them in the positive environment, didn't pass it down to their offspring. Does that make sense? Yeah, Absolutely. I just I, it's yeah. just such important work. I just 
I just want everyone to know about this. <laughs> well, and I think that brings up a really good point too, that in your book, you you offer a lot of exercises for people to start to unpack some of this in themselves. Before we wrap up today, I was really hoping you could touch upon core language and maybe we can leave our listeners with just like a very small exercise where they can start there and, and kind of determine their own core language. Sure, sure, we can do that. One of the things you know that I do in the book, because you've read it, is I, I teach the reader how to become a detective, to uncover the clues in the words they speak or the behaviors that repeat. So there's this trauma language that we speak, but there's also this trauma language of our repeating self-destructive behaviors or the potholes that we keep stepping in or the relationships, the the relationship choices we keep making or the self-sabotage. That's a language too. And when you learn how to hear your symptoms and hear the language, the actual verbal language even, I then lead the reader to where that language originates in the family history. And that lets us break the cycle. That lets us do one of these practices, which I spend the whole last third of the book teaching us how to do to break the the cycle. I'll give the reader, the listeners, one of these questions. In the book, I ask a gazillion questions to unearth this language. But one of them is the same question I asked that woman who was afraid that her child would die. And I asked her, what's the worst thing that would happen? And she said, I could harm my child. So let me ask your listeners. And again, make sure that you have support if you're going to do this. Don't just do this unless you have somebody to work with that can help you digest the material that comes up. Is that that fair? Yeah, Yeah. no, and I'm actually really happy you said that. That's, I think, a really important statement. Don't don't just do this. In fact, don't do this unless you have support. (laughs) Because in, in, in the book, one of the things I do is I'm right there walking side by side with the reader. Right here in the podcast, they get this and then we we end. But one of the questions is, what's the worst thing that could happen to you? What's your worst fear? If things suddenly went wrong, if if things came undone, if things suddenly fell apart, what's the worst thing that could happen to you? And this is a feeling before you had children. Maybe you even feel you've been born with this feeling. And then when people feel into that, they come up with what I call the core sentence. Are you, are you thinking of your core sentence in your mind? I am. We both things coming up. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We've covered a lot of a lot of heavy topics today, obviously, and, it, and it's such an important field of research. But I actually do feel really positive about all of this. I feel positive that you have spent the time to do this research and all of the wonderful scientists that you've mentioned today have spent the time to do this because, you know, I think this will really affect future generations really positively. Do you feel optimistic, Mark, or how do you feel about it? Very much so. Okay. Yay. (laughs) I know. I think your book should be mandatory reading. (laughs) It expands our, our repertoire of resources. I guess you could say, once we know what's going on, if we don't know what's going on, we're living under a cloud of everything, I'm wired this way, and everything bad happens to me. Why do I have these thoughts? And the book is very freeing, because what it does is it allows us to shake the family tree and see what falls out. 
you know, what family secrets have been hidden? What stories didn't get told? What traumas never healed all the way? Because, you know, I found that if we ignore the past, it can come back to haunt us. But when we explore it, we have options. We don't have to repeat it. We can break the destructive patterns. And as I said, the trauma itself contains the seed of expansion. In the contraction lives the expansion. And that trauma will keep repeating until it finds you at the right time ready to expand so it can heal. It's got chills. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I feel like that's a perfect way to end as well. As yeah. A nugget of wisdom. I mean, this whole thing has been a nugget of wisdom, but that was a beautiful way of putting it. So, Mark, thank you so, so much for having this conversation with us. Oh, I'm so glad to talk with you both. You both are just lovely. Oh, really. Thank you. <laughs> Is there anything else that you're working on or any workshops you have coming up? Anything else we could plug for you? People can find me on markwolin.com, M-A-R-K-W-O-L-Y-N-N.com. I have a training coming up, a three-day training in San Francisco, actually in Mill Valley. I have another one in Sydney coming up, Australia. (laughs) I have online trainings and courses that people can purchase on demand. People can come to workshops. People can do session with me when I have the time. Those types of things are all all quite possible. Wonderful. Fantastic. Well, yeah, we absolutely loved your book and we both hope to be able to do your course one day. So thank you so much, Mark. Really appreciate it. You're that. so welcome. My absolute pleasure. We hope you enjoyed this episode. How lucky are we that we get to chat to these mega talented folks? I think we're pretty fucking lucky. <laughs> Hell yes. So if you happen to like it too, share it with your mates and subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a thing. And don't forget, the conversation doesn't end here. We would love to hear from you. What did you think of today's episode? What else do you want to talk about? Yeah, what kind of conversations are you having? Or maybe what conversations aren't you having? Yeah, good point. Anyway, until next time. Bye. Thank <laughs> you.